Thank y'all. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed worshiping with y'all this morning, and uh, today's kind of a fun, special day. It's it's GBC's 20th anniversary, and um, yeah, kind of fun. Um, we've certainly outlasted the prognosticators over under, so uh, it's it's great. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that this morning. The, the one thing that I think I can say about GBC that maybe I love the most is, is that, like, apart from God's grace, there's, there's no explanation for, for this church. Um, when, when we first started out, I, I had seminary professors, as I described the model, kind of a high-commitment, disciple-making focus model. They, they said, fine if you want to do it, it'll never be more than two or 300 people. Um, you know, the idea that we're this young and vibrant and active, um, and I'm bald and 54, and like, we, we sing songs that have words like abideth, and um, like, there's, there's just not a lot of explanation. And, and that's the very best thing. So 20 years in, here, here's the deal. I want to thank all of you who have contributed to what is going on here. And I think the priesthood of believers, the body of Christ, um, deserves from a human perspective more credit uh, than, than like staff or anything like that. I really do. So thank you for that. The bottom line is even then, God's the one who's done it. Because you know, he's the one who's changed your lives. He's the one who's changed people's lives as you've invested in them. Like it's, it's God's work. And so anyway... Thanks for whatever credit you get, but God gets most of the credit. How about that? Um, we're going to be looking at Joshua. Yeah, that's, that's enough of that. Um, we, we are going to be looking at Joshua. It's our second sermon in Joshua. We're, we're going to be working through the book. Of, just so you know, I was kind of ticked in the early part of this week because I'm going to be gone next week on a discipleship trip, and I don't get to preach Joshua chapter 2, and it is like the best. And this is actually a really good, I repent of that because this is a great passage. But man, next week, come and bring your friends. Let me pray and we'll jump into Joshua 1. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thanks God that you have created here something that is special, something that has been a profound blessing to a lot of us running around here. And God, uh, you get all the credit, and so we, we are grateful for that. Lord, I want to pray today uh, for the people who don't understand who you are or what you've done, and I ask that you give them eyes to see that. I want to pray for the people who are hurting today, and I know there are people who are hurting today. I pray that they would feel uh, that they are not alone, that, that you are with them, but also that the, the body of Christ is, is here to, to demonstrate the love of Christ. Um, Help us, God, in all of that. Lord, as we turn our attention to Joshua 1, 10 through 18, I pray that your spirit would bring conviction where it's needed. I pray that you would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And I pray that we would look more like your son, Jesus, because we're here today. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Eight days ago, a college football underdog was playing an away game at a perennial powerhouse. Big game. Really big game. The underdog got the ball, 
with seven minutes left in the game and what was a surprising 10-point lead. 10-point lead. Seven minutes left, two possessions. The, the, the perennial powerhouse had to get the ball back and had to score twice. And seven minutes with three timeouts is a lot of time. Everyone in the stadium knew what was going to happen. The underdog that had the 10-point lead was going to take the ball and they were going to run it. And they were going to try to get first downs because with first downs, you get more plays and you get to run more clock. And running the ball is, is more clock. And that's going to be a challenge for the underdogs because they haven't run the ball that well in three and a half quarters of this game. But they've got to run the ball. The opposing coach knows that full well. They are stacking the line, trying to prevent the run, and then calling timeouts, hoping to minimize the time that is run off the clock until they get the ball back. The underdog ran 12 plays. The last three were taking a knee. They got three first downs, and they never relinquished the ball they basically got three and four yards every carry. It was not sexy. It, it, was, it was not fancy. It, it, was, it didn't make the ESPN highlight reels. It was pedestrian. But it got the job done. Execution in those pivotal moments, getting three and four yards, moving the chains, is what secured the victory. Joshua chapter 1. Verse 10 and 11. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are going to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And when you look at that, if you're like me, you're like, nothing special to see here. I... I read this, and I'm like, I wish I was preaching chapter 2. It feels pedestrian. It is pedestrian. Joshua, the leader, basically in these two verses says, get your stuff ready. Get your stuff ready. But if you understand just a little bit about where we are in the larger narrative, you'll understand that verses 10 and 11 are absolutely pregnant with meaning and significance. Understand this. Israel is coming off of 400 years of slavery. Think about the psychological implications of 400 years of slavery. You, you have not had a homeland. You don't know if you're really a people. You're just slaves. 400 years. You, forget about homes. You don't know if you have a homeland. That's what 400 years of slavery does. For the last 40 years, they've wandered around in an impossibly small wilderness. Like, pick a star and follow it. You'll get out of the wilderness. God won't let them out of the wilderness. And ultimately, they've been wandering around in this wilderness because they were scared when they got to the cusps of the promised land 40 years earlier to actually trust God and, and take what he was giving them. So it's a time out, and they're wandering and wandering and wandering. Their leader is a guy named Moses during all those wandering years. He provided the only stability that anyone in Israel had, had any personal recollection of. Like, I get that there's Abraham and, and some other people in his aftermath. That's hundreds of years ago. 
Moses is the only person who is a tangible, concrete link to this Yahweh God who seems to be incredibly patient with wayward Israel. And he just died. He's gone. Joshua, Moses' assistant, is now calling the shots. He's calling the shots. And he basically comes in verses 10 and 11. He says, pack your gear, gird up your loins. Within three days, we're going to take the land that God promised us 700 years ago. You can understand how this is really significant for Israel. In light of the magnitude of the moment, it's pretty actually remarkable that Israel executed. Let's face it, Israel in the past hasn't had a great track record, and Israel in the future is not going to have a great track record. But right here, they rally. And I give Joshua a ton of credit. He is both decisive and efficient in what he says. He's decisive. He's not consumed with the difficulties confronting him. They're going to have to cross the Jordan River, which is at flood stage. They're not a swimming people. They don't have boats. God says, cross the Jordan. He's like, get ready. They're going into a land full of ites, bad, big men, The 40 years prior, they had come right to the cusp of that. They had sent some spies in. Two of them said, we trust God, let's go. One of them was Joshua. The the other 10 were like, these guys are enormous. They, They make us feel like grasshoppers. There's no way. And Israel believes them, and that's why they do the timeout. He's not thinking about that. He's like, pack your bags. Let's get ready to go. He gives no excuses to justify passivity. Nor, by the way, does Joshua talk too much. Have you, have you seen leaders like that? When the moment seems like too big and they, they just kind of yammer on and on and on? I mean, the answer is you have. <laughs> There's nothing worse than a pregame talk that goes so long that you make the team late for the kickoff, y'all. And he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't go on and on pontificating. And the question is, how do you avoid such pontification? How do you avoid, as a leader, kind of wandering around verbally? What does it take? There's three things from last week's text that I think we can see first thing that you have to do as a leader not to pontificate, you got to know who you are. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, be strong and courageous. For you, this is God speaking, for you, Joshua, shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give them. You got to know who you are. Joshua is God's leader. And then the second thing you have to know is you got to know who's with you. You see that in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you, Joshua, all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses. This is God speaking. So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. If if you missed it in verse 5, you can see it in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You got to know 
who you are. You're Israel's leader. You got to know who's with you. Yahweh is with you. That's what verses 5 and 9 say. And then finally, you've got to know where you're going. And that's, that's solved in verse 2. Moses, my servant is dead. Again, God's speaking. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. You got to know where you're going. You're crossing the Jordan, and you're going to take the land, the land that I promised. You got to know who you are. You're Israel's leader. You got to know who's with you. Yahweh, the creator, the most powerful one, is with you. And you got to know where you're going. Once God tells Joshua those three things, at that point, the job's pretty simple, right? I didn't say easy, but it's pretty simple. If you know those three things, you're pretty solid as a leader. Why do most leaders fail? A lot of leaders fail. Why do most leaders fail? The, the answer might not be perfect, but I think this is the best one-word answer that exists to answer that question. Why do most leaders fail? Insecurity. Insecurity is why most leaders fail. Knowing those three things, who you are, who's with you, and where you're going, what does that create? It creates security, first and foremost, and it creates simplicity. It, Joshua doesn't have to gather a panel to figure out the right strategy. God's already told him, here's who you are, I'm with you, you're going to cross the Jordan, you're going to take the land. It, there's security, and there's simplicity. It's our 20th anniversary. It's probably a, an appropriate time to look back a little bit. GBC's success. Some of you are new here. Some of you have been here a long time. If you've been here a long time, I think you'll agree with this. If you haven't been here for very long, you need to know this. GBC's success hasn't come from complexity. It, it hasn't come from creativity. It hasn't come from profundity. It's come from simplicity. simplicity it, it's all been very simple for 20 years. For 20 years, and, and like, someone call me out on this if this is not the case, okay? I like, I dare you. Like, that seems too challenging. Like, if you, if you think this is something other than this, come talk to me. Like, we should chat. But here's the deal. For 20 years, we have hammered two things. I mean, like, beaten the drum on two things, Okay? The first is identity in Christ. Have I not talked a lot in the last 20 years about identity in Christ? Have I, have I not said that the gospel, this, this idea that Jesus has died to procure our souls and, and that our salvation is wholly dependent on his work, his shed blood, which covers our iniquity so that we might be secure? Isn't that identity in Christ? Like, don't find your identity in, in your job title, in your athletic performance, in your humor, in your intelligence. Find it in Christ. I, that is every sermon, some iteration of that, every single sermon. Because identity in Christ gives us security, and it's only in security that we can be strong and courageous. 
I promise you, if you want to mobilize the people of God to do something that will glorify God, and that is scary, the first thing you have to do is root them in the gospel. That's what we've done. For 20 years, it's just been a steady drip of identity in Christ leads to security, enables us to go take risks for the kingdom. The second thing that we have hammered for 20 years is discipleship and disciple-making. You can't really do the second one unless you're doing the first one. But if you're doing the first one, what a privilege to do the second one. What a privilege to participate in the kingdom's work that we would go out and make disciples, that we would proclaim the gospel to the whole world and then help them grow up to maturity, that they might go and proclaim the gospel to the whole world. And look, when we're talking about simplicity, that's it. And by the way, will that ever change? Like, do you think in 2025, we're going to go, you know what? We're kind of stale on disciple making. We're going to really emphasize you know, our youth sports program, or we're going to emphasize, you know, whatever it is, we're going to have, we're going to have something else and and we're going to organize around that. We're, We're going to get something else. Why would we? How, how will disciple making ever get old? Like, will, will there ever be a time where we'll, we'll come to doubt it? Maybe this isn't what Jesus wanted for us. Maybe he wants something else. Maybe, like, like what? I mean, that's, that's the great question. What would you propose? I mean, what's our alternative? Is it a new slogan or a new theme every year? Like some sort of raise the roof campaign and we're rallying around this for a couple months. And, and if that doesn't go well, like if it doesn't resonate, do, do you pivot right in the middle of it? Like you're jumping from slogan to slogan, like that's the key to the kingdom? I'd rather stick with disciple making. Thank you very much. How about this? How about, how about we start a billboard campaign? We, we buy billboards for $10,000 a month and, and you put my ugly mug up there and you say, that's the key to the kingdom? I would like to do some betting with you. You're ridiculous. Like, no way that works, right? Or, or maybe we, we hire a fashion consultant. We think the key to the kingdom is parading me out here with some sort of skinny jeans. Like, you know, like, so you can see how tiny my little one irons are, and you'll be like, that guy is 54 years old, and he's trying to look like a 27-year-old, and really the the net effect here is he looks like an egg on toothpicks. That's all you're going to get from that. Would you rather pitch that? I love that we are hammering and will continue to hammer identity in Christ, leading to security, making us strong and courageous so that we can mobilize the priesthood of believers so that they can go out and make disciples and see God work in them and through them. Why would we change a thing? Golly, this is so fun. Okay, we've talked a lot about leadership. We've, we've talked about Joshua's leadership and, and how he knew who he was and he knew who was with him and he knew where he was going and, and so he was decisive and he was efficient and, and I love that. Let's talk about biblical community for a second, can we? Verses 12 through 18. 
And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and take and you shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise to the east. And they answered Joshua, these two and a half tribes, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, and they didn't. So we will obey you, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you commanded him shall be put to death, only be strong and courageous. Okay, you get to verse 12 and it starts talking about the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and you become painfully aware that we're, we're reading other people's mail, right? You're like, I don't know who these people are, and so I'm going to give you a little background, and this background, if you want to read later, comes straight out of Numbers chapter 32, okay? But, but here's the gist of it. There, can you throw the map up real quick for me, Scott? Yeah, that's good. Okay, so you probably can't read everything on there, neither can I, it's okay. What you need to know, Gad, that, that blue thing in the middle, is not a big lake, okay? That's, that's a region. And, and there are two lakes. There's one up in the north, right beside, to the left of Basan. That's the Sea of Galilee. And then the bottom one there, you might be able to read it, is the Dead Sea. And then there's a, a river going from the Sea of Galilee to the north down into the Dead Sea, and that's the Jordan River, okay? So... Here's, here's what we have in Numbers 32. I'm going to make this quick and painless or less painful. Um, you got half of the tribe of Manasseh. You've got Gad and you've got Reuben, and, and they're all cattle ranchers, okay? They, they're all running livestock, all right? And they're camped out on the east side of the Jordan River, and the promised land is really on the left side of the Jordan River. But when they get there, they're running cattle. They're, they're far, or like, ranchers, and they're like, this is great land. We want to stay here. Now, Moses has a problem. This is before Joshua's leader. This is back in the day. Moses is the leader. Moses has a problem with that. He's, he's like, wait a second. We were promised the promised land. You want to get fat and happy running cattle on the east side of the Jordan? You're not going to help your brothers in Israel to take the land that God has promised? He, he's blowing a fuse. And they're like, no, no, no. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, we want the land east of the Jordan, but we will help you fight for the land west of the Jordan because it's the land that God has promised. At which point Moses is like, we're good. We're good. You, you take the east land, you help us fight in the west when that time has come. That's, that's what Numbers 32 is all about. And so the Reubenites, the Gadites, half of the tribe of Manasseh, they're east of the Jordan, as you can see up on that map. That, that's really what you know. They, they have a lot of cattle. It's great cattle country. 
but they're willing to fight. So now we fast forward to Joshua chapter 1. It's time to fight. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are all kind of cozied up. They're, they're settled in. Verse 14, your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, to the east of the Jordan. But all of the men of valor, all of the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. It's one thing to say that we'll fight. It's, it's another thing once God has given you your own land and, and you've built homes and you have children and you're running cattle, that, then to get up from that, to leave your cattle, to leave your wives, to leave your children, and to fight for land that will never be yours. It, it will be other people's land. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, and you shall help them, verse 14, until, watch the emphasis here, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is given them. You see that? He's like, God has given you your land. I want you to leave the rest that God has given you to fight for the rest for your brothers, the land that God is giving, hasn't yet given, but is giving them. You're going to have to leave rest to help others gain rest. Are you willing? Are you willing to leave rest to help others find rest? Look, the easiest application of this, this is going to get ugly here. The easiest application. These guys leave their ranches. They leave their ranches to help their brothers fight for land in which they'll never live. I get that it's not like ranches in South Texas where you're running cattle and you're drilling wells and you put on a cowboy hat and you play. I get that it's not that. But undeniably, they are leaving the rest that God has already given them and they are fighting for somebody else's rest. Are you willing to do that? Because sometimes that's the hardest conviction to find. Because the reality is, if you got a ranch in South Texas, you think, and you're right, God's given me this. And it sure is fun to be down here all the time. And it's comfortable, and I, I love it, and, you know, to God be the glory, but I'm right here. Thank you very much. And look, it doesn't have to be a ranch. It could be a house in Colorado. It could be, I mean, it could be a house in Utah. I mean, it can be whatever it is. God has given it to you, but it gets easy, doesn't it? Just to kind of go, yeah, this is what God gave me. I'm not called to anything else. I, I love the United States of America. I want you to know that. I really do. I, I'm all for rugged individualism. Rugged individualism, this idea that, that we as a nation are a free people and we get to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I love it. I love it specifically because I think it's important to the human psyche that every person would feel a sense of agency, that, that they can make a difference in their own lives. 
It's what creates work ethic. It's what creates drive and industry. And so I'm all for that. Like, I'm getting out ahead of someone saying I'm a communist. Here's the deal. Someone came up to me after the first service. I thought it was fantastic. She's, she's from a European country that dabbled in communism. She said, look, the difference is communists, communists say what is mine is yours. Christians say what is mine is yours. Communists say what is yours is mine. <laughs> Maybe I am a communist. <laughs> I'm not. Communists say, what is yours is mine. Christians say, what is mine is yours. Man, just had a brush with a real problem. (laughs) There's a principle here that I think we can all apply pretty easily. Is the goal of your work just to make money for you? Is Is it to make a reputation for you? Is it to create security for, for your family? To an extent, yes. Or do you do that stuff to be a steward of what God has given you that you, that you might advance God's kingdom? Hey, that's an important question because rugged individualism says, I've done this. Maybe God helped me, but this is for me. And, and if God gave it to me, he gave it to me for me. See, the, the dark backside of rugged individualism can be real obtuse selfishness. Is the goal of work for you to get more money or is it to help your neighbors? To be a contributor to society. Is the goal of retirement, you know, we're a pretty young church, we've got a few people kind of right on the edge of retirement. Is, is the goal of retirement independence and ease? Or have you been grinding it out so that you can quit and just like sip some sort of, you know, little umbrella infused cocktail on a beach somewhere? Is, is that the goal of retirement? Or is it that you might be freed from the obligations of work, that you might invest in other people for the sake of the kingdom more? You, you see how it gets into us? It all becomes about us. And I think God says freedom comes when we are living to be a blessing to other people. Verses 16 through 18 again, and they answered Joshua, all you've commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, we will, so, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Look, I, I wanted to finish with that because the reality is there's really no great leadership without great followership. And and the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they are demonstrating exemplary followership. Joshua's a great leader of Israel. We've already talked about that. He knew who he was. He knew who's with him. He knows where he's going. I'm all for that. I think that matters. But the reality is, if, if he had said, this is who I am, this is where I am going, God is with me, and he starts walking across the Jordan River, and nobody follows him, he's not a leader. He's just out for a walk. That's all there is. And so really, yeah, there's great leadership, but I promise 
It doesn't work without great followership. And Israel, in this one moment, take it where you can get it. They're unified. There is even greater than unity, solidarity. The reason I wanted to finish with this is this year, we recruited at Grace Bible Church way more growth group leaders than we thought we would ever need. I mean, like, way more. For the last three years, we've recruited way more leaders and, and people enrolling in growth groups, our, our foundational disciple-making small group, have, have far outpaced our, our craziest projections. We had like 625-ish, something like that. People sign up for growth group. That's new people who want to be discipled. 620, like that, that is ridiculous. That is nuts. I don't, I don't know where they're coming from. There aren't that many people graduating from Baylor. Like, <laughs> it is, it's, it's crazy. It's record signups. And, and so Travis and, and Mimi and, and really our whole staff work to recruit extra leaders. You make your best projections. You recruit your leaders. It's not enough. You're scurrying around. And, and really what we're trying to do, what they're trying to do is they're trying to flip people. Flip people from just community group participation to growth group leaders, or, or community group leaders to growth group leaders. And they've already thought in their mind, this is going to be great. This is what I'm going to do. This is going to be so fun. And, and then we call them in, in September, and we're like, change of plans. <laughs> they recruited a lot of people, and they wanted some help at the very end, and so they, they called me to make some final calls. And, and look, you call people, and, and some people have good reasons why they can't. And I, like, we get that. We totally get that. But here's what I think is so much fun. Like you, you talk to people and go, look, God is doing something that is kind of special and, and the fields are ripe for harvest and we need laborers. W would you do this? And like to watch people go, hey, it's not where I was going, but it seems to be where the Lord's going. I'm in. I'm in. That is God. Like, that is, I know it's a phone call, it's also a holy moment when, when people pivot like that. Joshua 1, the stakes might be a little bit higher because these guys are leaving their ranches potentially to die, but it's the exact same principle. I'm willing to pivot for the sake of the kingdom and the people of God. Whatever it takes, I'm in. After World War II, Europe was a mess. A lot of bombs, a lot of devastation, just in shambles. U.S. forces stayed around after World War II to help our European allies and actually a lot of our enemies pick up the pieces. Picking up the pieces. And I, I read about some of the U.S. forces who who stayed in Great Britain, and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the war had a devastating effect on the population, and, and it left behind an incredible number of orphans on the streets of the cities of, of England. And, and one guy, uh, a U.S. You know, soldier, was driving his Jeep after a long day back to his barracks, and 
And he pulls around a corner in his open Jeep, and it's after the war, and, and he sees a, a little orf, orphan boy, maybe six or seven years old, and he, he's standing out of a pa- outside of a pastry shop with his nose kind of pressed up against the window, and he's, he's just watching this cook who's kneading dough to make donuts. And, and the guy, the soldier, is driving by, and you can just see it without anybody saying it. This kid, ragged pants, ragged shirt, orphaned. He's just starving. The soldier pulls his jeep over to the curb, gets out, walks back to the little boy and says, son, would, would you like some donuts? The little boy doesn't even move his face from the window. He's, oh yeah. The soldier doesn't say another thing. He walks into the store. He goes up to the counter He buys a dozen donuts. He puts them in a sack. He goes out. He says, here you go, son. He turns around to walk away. The boy hasn't said anything. As he's walking away, the little boy grabs his jacket, pulls it. It's cold. He says, mister, are you God? You're not God. But to live the way God wants you to live, people should get confused. That they should wonder. Because we are the body of Christ. We are the people who represent his purposes. What an incredible privilege that is. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people to a man and woman who eagerly run to wherever we need to go to represent you. I pray, God, that our lives would be marked by joy-filled sacrifice and amazing tenacity as we love people who desperately need love. God, I pray that we would be people of grace and kindness and dignity. I pray, God, that we would understand who we are in Christ, that our worthiness is wholly rooted in Jesus and what he has done for us. But, Father, I pray that that would change us from the inside out. I pray, God, that because of the security we have in Christ, we would no longer be hoarders. We would instead be givers. I pray, God, that as we give our lives away, as we give whatever you have given us away, that we would delight in what you've given us opportunity to give, that we might glorify you. Father, please may it be true. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.